Hi, Jeff. What word do you associate with the word change? Coins. <laughs> <laughs> I was more thinking in the terms of I change into something new. Uh, a butterfly. Revolution? Ooh. Being French, I have to bring it out. <laughs> <laughs> what about silicon carbide? I wish our listeners had the video channel on this right now. <laughs> yes, because they'd see my look of absolute disbelief that you brought those two words <laughs> so soon. <laughs> Come on, this is a tech podcast. And speaking of change, that's actually the theme of this episode. And I guess one of those new things is me. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. Hi, listeners. My name is Shuko Charlotte-Rose. Hi, Shuko. And hi, listeners. I'm Jeff Kostaitis. And if you've been listening to this podcast, then you'll already know me. But Shuko's voice might sound unfamiliar to you. And if that's the case, then that means you didn't listen to our last episode, <laughs> which I definitely recommend you catch up on. But here's the short version. Milena, my co-host, is out on parental leave. And now Shuko is our new co-host. Small shout out to our dear Milena and thank you again to the podcast team for this amazing opportunity. My normal job at Bosch is organizing trade fairs and events and I have featured in video clips for Bosch, but audio only is a brand new format and I'm curious to see where this journey takes me. I always find changes like this and just generally new things exciting and as innovations are the topic of this episode. I think we're going to make it clear that introducing something new is, yes, inspiring and exciting and invigorating and whatever fascinating <laughs> adjectives you'd like to throw in there. Uh, but also, it's never necessarily frictionless. It's actually pretty challenging. Well, we do say never change a running system. At least I've heard it more often in Germany than not. <laughs> so what do you think, Shuko? Why is it so unpopular to make changes then? We are creatures of habit, and I think for some people, the thought of changing something you're so comfortable with is just not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, even if the situation is not ideal, there is always a risk that any new thing might make things worse. Um, <laughs> additionally, change often requires a lot of effort, and I'm sure a lot of people don't have the time or the desire to invest that amount of energy into something that has been running like a well-oiled machine yep. over a longer period of time. Yep, very well said. And now, go a step further and imagine whatever it is that you want to swap out is something which is basically omnipresent. And I, I mean, it's it's everywhere. <laughs> and what I'm talking about is silicon. Not silicone, silicon. Got it. Virtually all semiconductors are made out of silicon. But there is, in fact, something better. At least for a number of applications, and that is silicon carbide. So basically, <laughs> silicon with a little bit of carbon in it. That's right. We'll hear all about why Bosch is now making semiconductors out of silicon carbide, and what it took to make this happen, and why tiny amounts of silicon carbide in electric cars can make them lighter and more energy efficient. But to learn about the material itself, let's go to space. The final frontier. Yes. This is where silicon carbide comes from. Meteorites actually brought it to Earth. Wait a second. In my research, I found that silicon carbide was first created in a lab in the late, what, 1800s, when an American inventor tried to produce diamonds? Oh, 
is is the rookie doing her own research now? <laughs> okay, I guess I got to step up my game. <laughs> yes, Shuko, that is that is true. Uh, when we learned about silicon carbide, uh, it was created by humans, and it was uh, quite after the fact that we discovered it in meteorite dust. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> First impressions, Jeff. That's right. First impressions. That's right. Jump in with the splash. <laughs> but now we're actually sending it back into space because many advantages of silicon carbide really play out in space applications. So uh, my name is uh, Siddharth and I'm the managing director of Divari Scientific Instruments. So we are a German SME and we are active in the field of 3D printing of metals and ceramics, which we co-develop with the European Space Agency for space applications as well as for industrial applications. Shuko, can you tell me, since you, you're more German than me, at least, um, can you explain for our listeners what SME is? Small and medium <laughs> enterprise? Yeah, Perfect. <laughs> Yes, so not not big German business, the small and medium-sized German business. That's what he meant. So one of the materials that SID's startup can use in their 3D printing process is silicon carbide. He says it's a great material for things that you want to send up into space. It's hard like diamond. It's lightweight, and it can be used as a material that can withstand temperatures up to 1,700, 1,800 degrees Celsius, depending upon the grade of silicon carbide. So we're talking about something which is hard and lightweight at the same time and temperature resistant, which are exactly the qualities you want to build a great spaceship. Well, not so fast, young Padawan. Nobody is going to build an entire satellite or landers out of silicon carbide anytime soon. Sid thinks that it will first be used in propulsion systems where its temperature resistance comes into play. But yeah, in terms of saving weight, silicon carbide is less than half as dense as steel. Oh, uh, well, okay then, Master Shuko. Uh, let's give our <laughs> users an example. So so if I had dice made out of silicon carbide, what, what would they weigh? About 3.2 grams per cubic centimeter. And I looked it up. That's about the same did. density as ground coffee. <laughs> oh, ground coffee. That's okay. That's uh, that puts things into perspective, and and also is a great segue for a coffee break. Just a second. <laughs> and as you can imagine, saving one kilogram of weight can save a lot of money on a mission to the moon. About fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. Why reusable rockets are in such focus these days, and you need economical and high-quality materials and structures to withstand the stresses of launch and re-entry. Another property is CTE. It's called a coefficient of thermal expansion. It's basically to what extent a material expands or contracts when it's subject to a temperature. And silicon carbide has a very low CTE. So you could actually subject it to a very high temperature, but its geometry wouldn't change a lot. Sid says that it is important, for example, for optical devices like mirrors that you need in satellite or space telescopes. So why are we not making all of those out of silicon carbide? Because its hardness and high melting temperatures also make it hard to handle. Sid's startup, however, is making great advances with 3D printing. I, I know uh, the 3D printers that you mostly see today, like the Dremel ones that Bosch produces, as it happens. Mm -hmm. um, they're using their their filaments are are made out of plastic, and then they melt it mm -hmm. and they build it up layer by layer to create whatever the design structure is and an additive process. Um, how does that work on a material with a higher melting point? It's basically using the same filament, but it's not 
purely made up of plastic, you embed metal or ceramic powders into this filament. The printing process is basically the same. Of course, you need to do some modifications uh, because this material is now special. But once you've bought it in form, what you basically have to do is you have to get rid of the plastic. And that's actually done through heat treatment. And once the plastic is gone, they heat the printed piece up even more. The plastic has escaped and you have voids. And uh, you need to close it and that's what is sintering. It's a process of atomic diffusion where the particles uh, come together and diffuse together to form a really dense mass. Sid calls this process FFF, Fused Filament Fabrication. Does FFF or... F3, we need to work on the acronym here. Does FFF... F-cube? Yeah, there you go. Does fused filament fabrication just offer better performance? Or does it really enable, I mean, are we talking about entirely new applications here? Both, actually. Um, Sid has some near-term goals and some long-term dreams in this regard. And he's about to explain us why. Printing a mirror for a telescope or for satellite communication would be an absolute dream. (laughs) It's a very challenging thing (laughs) where you need to polish them perfectly, mirror-like finish. And that's really hard with silicon carbide because they're hard like diamond, as I said previously. We are also working on several other projects. Uh, For example, we are trying to use the same technique of FFF to produce habitats on the moon using in-situ resources. So there are a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, science fiction-like projects that uh, would be amazing when they come to life and that would definitely be a dream come true for me and my team. That even sounds like a dream come true. Uh, (laughs) So, but I was kind of wondering about this. Why send the, the 3D printed parts to the moon? We're talking about launch costs, after all, how expensive it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking, why not just send the printer itself there and then you print there, right? You would think about that. That'd be a great idea. But, uh, oh God. Yeah, well, there's always a but. We talked about things <laughs> never being frictionless, right? Um, you know, the, the printer technology, like he was saying, you know, you need, you need to really heat things up, which is highly energy intensive as well. You don't really want to be doing that on the moon uh, or in a, in a space environment where any sort of fire hazard is absolutely a no-go. Uh, and then also with 3D printing, you know, you kind of need gravity for that. Um, so in lower gravity environments, that gets harder too. It's all sorts of complications. Like we said, friction. Well, if it were easy, I think it wouldn't be fun in any case right. anyways. So, um, but still, isn't it fascinating what could be one day possible? Yeah. So in essence, for space applications, silicon carbide makes stuff tougher and lighter, which saves energy and money. And while we're talking about this, the same is true for these applications in electric cars down here on Earth. A little bit of silicon carbide in a couple dozen tiny transistors can end up saving many kilograms of weight and even significantly reduce the cost of charging the battery. But that's not because silicon carbide is lighter. No, it's because it has what's called a wide band gap. For people who know something about electronics, you probably know what that means. For everyone else, like here's Bosch's Bruno Schuster to explain more about it. <laughs> My job and also the job of of our team at Automotive Electronics is really to make this material usable for semiconductors and focusing, in our case, on automotive applications for electric vehicles, for example. Bruno, like all of us these days, is concerned about climate change. As you know, we urgently need to shift to renewable energies to slow down global warming. But 
So how we generate our energy is, is for sure one important thing, but also how we use our energy and how efficiently we use the energy worldwide is a different thing. Bruno says that of the energy which is generated by a power plant, only 70% actually ends up in our devices. 70. Yeah, 70% is actually making it to your laptop or, or your phone or your electric car. 30% of the energy produced is actually lost along the way. Transmission losses, conversion losses. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it continues actually inside the devices as well. Uh, they can't actually use all the electric energy either. Right. They heat up, mm -hmm. and heat is basically lost energy, mm -hmm. as we learned when we replaced old-fashioned light bulbs by LEDs. And they still produce some heat. That's right. And for sure, your electric car does as well. In your electric drive, means energy from the battery to the wheels, basically. Inside there, you have a 25% loss of, of energy. And out of this, roughly one-third is power electronics. That is a lot of energy wasted just between the battery and the wheels. Yeah. So improved power electronics could really make an impact here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, because the losses largely happen, actually, when the direct current from the battery is converted to the alternating current, which is what the motor needs. That conversion is done by transistors, silicon transistors. Roughly also three quarters of this energy loss is reduced by using silicon carbide compared to silicon technology, which is state-of-the-art today. So just to repeat that figure, because it is so impressive, silicon carbide transistors can reduce the conversion losses by 75%. That's impressive. Wow. Wow. But how? <laughs> wow, but how? <laughs> how about it? <laughs> oh, do you think we can convince our team to rename the podcast? Oh, yeah. We'll talk to the producers. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for oversight? Shame. Okay, okay. So how, how about this? A, a little bit of transistor-based knowledge. The semiconductor is a semiconductor because it can either conduct electricity or not. You can switch it on and off. This is related to the band gap of the semiconductor material, which means that the amount of energy needed to basically free an electron from an atom so that it becomes a conduction electron. For the silicon carbide, the band gap is much wider than that of silicon. That's why it's called a wide band gap semiconductor. Mm, okay, but that doesn't really explain why it's better. Fair enough. It's better because thanks to the wide band gap, you can make the material considerably thinner inside the transistor itself. Bruno says that the active layers of the silicon carbide transistors are just about 10% the height uh, compared to a silicon transistor. At the end, the thinner the material is, the lower is the, the resistance and, and the conduction losses of a material, just for example. Meaning the lower the resistance, the less heat is generated. The less heat is generated, exactly. You also have a re significant reduction of switching losses of silicon carbon. And with this, overall, your, your heat, which, uh, which is dissipated, is much, much lower. And that means you need less cooling infrastructure also. Which, again, saves energy. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> right on. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. Um, silicon carbide has a better thermal conductivity, has a 
higher temperature capability. So you can operate it with higher temperatures. And especially the thermal conductivity is also helping to reduce the size. It's easier to get the heat out of the material, which again means that you don't need as big of a cooling system. So that's the advantages around wasting less energy on heat and cooling. In addition to that, silicon carbide transistors can also switch much faster than silicon transistors. Why does that matter? Well, let's have a closer look at what's actually happening here. The transistors switch the DC, the direct current, from the battery on and off in such a way that the result approximates a sine wave, as you would see in perfect alternating current, AC. We have inside the power electronics several transistors, we call the so-called P6 bridge, which is by switching with high frequencies in the range of 10, uh, 10 kilohertz or even above, generating a, a three-phase sinus signal for the electric motor. And the faster they switch on and off, the more precisely the resulting current resembles a sine wave. And the more precise your sinus signal is, the better is the efficiency of the electric motor. And energy is saved yet again. And with this increased switching frequency, you can also reduce additional components, what we call passive components in the power electronics. There's, for example, a DC link capacitor. You can use it as a, mechanics you would say, as a dampening element. And the higher the frequency is, the smaller these passive components can be. Which means silicon carbide helps reduce the weight of the car. And that means, Shuko? Energy saved. And so by now, what's our current score on total energy saved? Oof, um, let's see. The savings from the heat generation. Um, then we had the cooling. Mm, the passive components. That makes a total of 6%. Means you can increase your driving range by, by this uh, 6%. Or you can reduce the size of your battery by this, say, 6% and have a lighter vehicle at the end. Which again would save energy. Mind officially blown. <laughs> and I realize to, to some of our listeners, 6% might not sound like much. But it's actually a huge, as, as the knock-on effect is, is coming purely from the semiconductors. Imagine if all the cars suddenly saving 6% of fuel just by changing one component. That's revolutionary. Absolutely. Or put it this way. If you think of an electric car with a range of 450 kilometers, you would gain around about 27 kilometers extra reach. That is the equivalent of my daily commute to work. See? A free ride to work. How about that? Perfect. Insane. <laughs> So, Shuko, uh, you were just at the IAA, the, the big uh, international auto show in Munich. Uh, the main topic this year was electric cars, of course. Um, did they have silicon carbide transistors inside? So, first off, it was a really long two weeks, and I'm I really glad was. to yeah, be sure. back home. Even though it was um, really exciting to be, again, live at a certain location, uh, meeting customers, meeting colleagues again. So, that was really, really a great feeling. Yeah, We welcomed sure. basically a new industry uh, to the IAA, which is the e-bike industry as well. Um, Are there silicon carbide transistors in the, in the bikes these days? <laughs> that would be kind of cool. It, I, actually, it would be a really good and interesting question to ask our colleagues there. Um, but in essence, I definitely saw a lot of electric cars, um, and I would assume that they have silicon carbide inside of them. However, 
It's not so easily seen. Um, and one of our highlights actually at our booth um, at the Messe München, uh, we created an exhibit this year called the, the Pace Car. And in this Pace Car, we tried to um, give any visitor, any customer, um, a quick all-rounder of everything Bosch can do um, or any kind of solution Bosch can give. Um, so it's like a demo car. I would say it's a way to show our product portfolio on a really easy and quick way. So we really showed them that we're not only component a supplier for components, we can actually deliver systems. So is that then more more geared towards end consumers or is that more geared towards business partners? More geared towards business partners. Got it. And okay. funnily enough, in this car, we did have two little silicon carbide transistors ah, um, that we, we um Exactly, that we plated um, because, as you said, they're tiny. So we tried to make them or we tried to give them a little bit more visibility in this huge exhibit car. Well, it's cool that we were able to put in the demo car kind of and highlight exactly where the thing is and what it's doing. Uh, it's kind of hard to see any of these components these days uh, when you're just opening the car's hood. But for sake of example, I have this little model car here. Actually, it's quite old. It's given to me by my grandparents. But anyway, um, so if Aww. I would look for the power electronics, yes, I would look somewhere under the hood. Uh, and more specifically, what we would be looking for here is the inverter. And that's the device that transforms the direct current to the alternating current. Usually, you'd find 24 transistors just in the inverter. And the inverter is where the silicon carbide transistors would have the biggest impact. So the inverter basically sits right by the electric motor, usually in the front of the car. Uh, but there are more potential applications for our silicon carbide transistors. For instance, in the onboard charger. Remind me, that should also be somewhere in front of, in the front, under the hood, right? Yes, right. Uh, it might sit a little bit to the right side over here, there, um, in our video chat that our listeners can't see, but nonetheless. Um, <laughs> and it does the opposite of the inverter. So when you charge your car with the alternating current, the onboard charger converts it to direct current DC for the battery. But then what happens next? There's yet another power converter here on the other side, the <laughs> DC to DC converter. Uh, it converts the 400 or even 800 volts uh, from the battery to the 12 volts for your lights and your dashboard and your multimedia system and so on. So there's a lot of transformation of electricity going on in an electric car. So many opportunities where silicon carbide can actually make things more efficient. Yeah, exactly. There's these little opportunities all over the systems. Um, and it continues on the outside of the car as well. I mean, you have also like wall boxes, charging pillars and so on. And this is a field which is today not yet in, in the focus of silicon carbide, but I'm, I'm very sure that this will also come in the near future, that also the energy conversion to your car on the way from the grid to your car, there is also a big saving potential because if you, if you charge an electric car, you pay much more than you have at the end in your battery <laughs> at the end. And this is also giving additional benefit to the consumer. At the end, it's saving money, to be clear. 
ding, ding, ding. <laughs> True. So you have to pay for the lost energy. Mm-hmm. So reducing the losses while charging will immediately impact your wallet. Yeah, of course. I mean, money has always been the best argument to save energy, hasn't it? Look at our word association at the beginning of the episode. Sadly, yes. Although I have to say, I feel like people are increasingly willing to spend money on something that is more climate friendly than a comparable cheaper product. Um, and I see it for myself. I try to buy as locally as possible. And even for simple things like vegetables, you can pay a lot more for locally and responsibly sourced produce. But do you really think that will be the case for silicon carbide transistors in electric cars? Will those cars be more expensive? Well, the silicon carbide transistors themselves as components definitely are more expensive. Uh, But overall, when you look at it at the kind of system level, it pays off. For instance, as Bruno said earlier, you could reduce the size of the battery, uh, which is then having a huge uh, a huge impact on the weight. And of course, the battery itself is the most expensive component of the car by far. Uh, and so you could easily save the cost for the silicon carbide right there. Wouldn't it be great if we could replace all these silicon transistors by silicon carbide today? Well, I tried to find out why it's easier said than done. Well, you know, Sid already told us at the beginning of the episode that silicon carbide is not the easiest material to handle for 3D printing. So I assume for semiconductor production, it provides some additional challenges as well. Remember what he said about the density of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like the, the silicon uh, wafers, you put silicon carbide wafers into your process and suddenly your machines, it's all good, right? Yeah, we wish it were like that. Um so Jeff, this is Jan Altsmeier. He works in process development at Bosch's semiconductor fab in Reutlingen, Germany. Jan says to make a transistor out of a wafer is a process with up to 400 steps. So on out of the 400 steps, I would say 200 or 300 are at least similar to silicon uh, production, but there are a lot of differences. For example, silicon carbide has a very low diffusion constant compared to silicon at in turn means you have to process some steps at very high temperatures. We are able to go above 2,000 centigrades. And that is, of course, very unusual for silicon. Silicon would just melt at these temperatures. Well, I mean, there's just more heat. We've, we've heard about that before, right? Yes, we have. But that's one reason why they needed new machinery. And because this process is very, very new, it's not like Jan and his team could just order up some standard equipment, plug it in and make transistors, they actually had to work closely with suppliers to specify, develop, build, and adjust the machines until they reached the desired outcome. Uh, that sounds intensive. Um, can we have an example uh, for one of the machines that they bought? Mm, you could have multiple, but if Jan had to pick one... I just need to mention our high-energy iron accelerator weighs more than 40 tons and takes up uh, more than 40 square meters. That is a huge machine. <laughs> wow. Uh, what, but I, I have to ask, um, that sounds more like something for a science experiment. What do they need an ion accelerator for? I asked myself the same question. But to make a semiconductor work, you need to dope it. You shoot atoms into it. Experts call them dopants. We implant actually uh, dopants at high temperatures and very high energies. That's also a result of the slow diffusion constant. We have to shoot these dopants deep into the crystal. So that's one challenge. Handle these higher energies, 
get the new machines to work, etc. But then there's the other part of it, where they wanted to keep using the existing machines. A lot of effort had to go into making it work and transforming a working semiconductor fab, which of course still works with silicon, to make it able to also process silicon carbide in parallel. So, for example, one difference between silicon and silicon carbide, silicon carbide is transparent. It can be hard to see. My machine always wants to know where is which wafers, how many wafers are in a wafer cassette and so on. And all these sensors at first didn't work. It just didn't work because I couldn't see the wafer because it's just transparent. <laughs> What a problem to have. <laughs> um, but for sure, as, as by now we all know, Uh, the expertise of our engineers, this sounds like a fairly rudimentary problem for them to solve. Totally. It sounds solvable. I agree. But of course, over the past few years of developing the silicon carbide process, uh, you can imagine some bigger challenges came up too. Yeah, that's actually happened a couple of times that I just got a phone call from a fab engineer and say, I have your wafers here and, and they just won't, my machine can't deal with your wafers. They're just too, <laughs> too warped. Please do something about it. They were warped. That's definitely not a word that I would want associated with that product because that's something which you always know is supposed to be perfectly flat. Exactly. And these processes put stress on the wafer and at some point they just became uneven and warped. And that was a little bit more complicated to resolve. Yeah, first, of course, you need to collect data. You need to find out which process bends my wafer in which direction and then find a way to manipulate the process in such a way that we have a wafer that can be processed in all relevant machinery. So as you can imagine, what they ended up doing were a few things. Um, they changed the order of some of the processes, for example. They even changed the design of the transistors. But there was one genius idea that was probably the most important. You know that etching is important for making semiconductors, right? Yeah, of course. Uh was uh, back in the MEMS episode where we talked about this exactly. Um, just f as a reminder, uh, and especially bringing uh, Melina back here in spirit, whoop, whoop. let's take a quick, uh, let's take a quick, what do you call it, shout out? Eh. A look back. Um, anyway, let's hear from episode three. How are the tiny MEMS made? Well, they were made out of silicon, a little bit like other electronic components. So you start with a slice of a silicon crystal. Um, it's called a wafer. And then you etch structures into it. So there are robots involved in the different steps. But the moving parts of the MEMS sensor, they are not assembled. They are practically made in one go. This etching process carves them out of the silicon wafer. That's the short and simple version. Similar to making computer chips or integrated circuits. So that was from Milena in this episode, but let's also not forget our other colleague, Emma Abel, who drew the big picture. Uh, in her own words, the challenge of MEMS production. The challenges in MEMS are a little bit different to in normal integrated circuits because of it being a 3D moving structure. We have a lot more focus on mechanical robustness. I know a modern uh, integrated circuit process is planarized. That means you fill in every level before you go up to the next level and it's basically flat afterwards. MEMS has topology, which means I have, after it's been made, I have high bits and low bits. And that's a big challenge for building up new layers is that the surface that you're building them up on can be very uneven. 
I think it's very nice that we were able to bring Milena back into this episode. Oh, I love it. It was nice to hear her again. Uh, and and if you would like to listen for the first time or re-listen to that entire episode with Milena and our colleague Emma Abel, of course, we put the link to that episode in the show notes of this episode. So coming back to etching, Jan's yes. team came up with the idea to also use etching on the backside of the wafer in order to control the warping. They thought... One way to deal with bow would be to just deposit a stressy material on both sides of the wafer and etch it off on, on the one side where you, you don't want it in order to basically force the wafer to be flat again. So when Jan says deal with the bow, he's talking about the warping that they experienced and how they were attempting to fix that. So did it work? Did you have any doubt it wouldn't? Of course it did. Fair enough. (laughs) And many other challenges were solved as well. Three cheers for our Bosch engineers. Yay, Bosch engineers indeed. (laughs) Wow. Everyone we talked to from the team was really proud of that, and rightly so. Absolutely. So, Jan's basically done now? Of course not. There are still some (laughs) kinks to work out, making sure that scaling up production from a handful of wafers to hundreds to thousands of wafers goes well, and that every single semiconductor works reliably. And also, Jan is already thinking about the second generation of the devices, so... We don't have shortages of new challenges, that's for sure. Well, thanks a lot, Shuko, for that close-up look into the development and production of a brand new semiconductor fabrication process. Very cool. Thank you. De rien, Jeff. Avec plaisir. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm trying to stay focused in English, and then I still got to remember my German and and work on my my Portuguese. Now you're throwing French at me. I'm not smart enough for this. You know that, right? These are the challenges of change. (laughs) Fair enough. Jeff. I think it's become pretty clear why making seemingly small changes can mean so much effort. And I mean, the silicon carbide instead of silicon. It sounds like just one word, uh, but it's really a big difference. And then you have all of these problems and challenges that take even the best engineers years to figure out. So you've got to be sure that it pays off. Got to make sure you know the ROI. And I'm amazed by the scope of these changes. I mean, instead of silicon, you use silicon with a little bit of carbon in it. And as a consequence, you not only save a lot of electric energy in your car, in your charger, or in many steps along the way from the power plant to your battery, but it also means that your car will be lighter and you'll even have more room in it. The ripple effect is just amazing. Absolutely, it is. The first cars with silicon carbide transistors in them are actually already available on the market. And I have to say, uh, I'm fairly tempted to get one after seeing this episode. I, I am in the market after all. In any case, a bientôt, Jeff, and thanks for our first ever episode together. I'm already looking forward to the next one. Me too, Shuko. Me too. And I'm curious to see the ripple effects of the change we made on the podcast team. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> well, in my case, I love to be challenged and embrace change, so I totally agree with Jan. We don't have shortages of new challenges, that's for sure. From know-how to wow. The Bosch Global Podcast. <laughs>